Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me, on the mic, hosting an episode where I share recent reflection or story from my own life, as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Catherine Lau. Catherine is the CEO and co-founder of Stuff, one of Fast Company's world's most innovative companies in 2022. She was named to Inc. Magazine's Female Founders 100 list in the same year. Catherine is passionate about reinventing consumer experiences in the physical world and leads the company's strategic vision and overall strategy in transforming the self-storage industry. From 2015 to 2020, Catherine led supply growth at Industrious, the nation's largest premium shared workplace provider. As VP of real estate, she pioneered an industry-first asset and liability-like growth strategy, which generated $150 million in annual managed revenue and prompted CBRE to acquire Industrious in early 2021. Catherine hired and managed a 20-plus person team and oversaw the company's 14 times expansion in under four years while developing go-to-market strategies for new digital products and tenant experience services. Prior to Industrious, Catherine worked at Equinox as manager of development, supporting the company's national expansion of luxury fitness clubs. She has also held acquisitions, asset management, and capital markets roles at L&L Holding Company and PGIM Real Estate Prudential. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Catherine. Hey, Catherine. Hi, Erica. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. What an impressive bio. You've done some cool stuff. Yeah, as you're reading it, like my imposter syndrome comes out and I'm like, okay, well, this is how so many women feel or react to their own bios and their achievements. But yeah, I've done a lot. You've done a lot. I think that's also why, and I mentioned this to you before we started, but that's why I read these bios. Not everyone knows this that listens, but like I read the bio live with the guest because I want them to just like sit there and read it. And think about it because I think so often you're just going day to day and you don't think about how far you've come. I mean, now you run a huge company and you've done all these cool things before that. So it's good to take a second and just, you know, relish in the accomplishments. Yeah. Well, <laughs> feeling <laughs> good. <laughs> yeah. I love it. And fun fact too, on the Equinox front, we had Lavinia, the founder of Equinox on the podcast. She was like oh, one cool. of our earliest guests way back when. Like I think she was on episode five, six or seven, something like that. Well, it's an incredible brand. And yeah, so it definitely was an important part of my journey. Yeah, absolutely. Well, before we dive into the journey, we start with every show with a, a fun question. Take this in whatever direction you want. What is something new that you've learned in this past week? It could be work-related, it could be personal-related, but something new that you can share with the audience. I actually read this morning an article in the New York Times about how the stretch limo is, is on the way out is not in favor anymore because of Uber, Lyft, all these ride-sharing companies kind of taking over that car service, if you will. Very sad. That's like a big part of my childhood was like those, you know, once every five to six year moments, you know, to prom or for something maybe sad or like a funeral or whatever. There's those moments where you're like, this limo is the only thing keeping us going. 
Oh my God, the prom, all your friends like shoveled in the back, squished. It was just really fun. And I, it's so funny, your perspective changes so much because back in the day, it was like, that's such a big deal. Like a limo. It's a limo, guys. And now I'm like, it's a limo. Who rides a limo? I know. It's so tacky <laughs> now. And I yeah. feel like too, like with what, I mean, you honestly, you can take multiple Uber XLs now. Like with what context would someone take a limo other than prom? Like I'm trying to think of what, that context is where you would want to show up like that, where you'd want it, maybe a bachelorette. No, it would be, you would be desperate. There would be no Uber, Lyft, it'd probably be at the airport and a, a, like a really old limo shows up. And that's the only reason why. Oh yeah. Also, that's another thing too. I think it's like for the older demo, they maybe like limos because they're used to it. I mean, my mom's like already too cool. She's 60, 65, and she would not be stuck in a limo or not Same be with caught mine. dead in one. Yeah. I know. But maybe our moms are just cool. Who knows? They're cool. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, let's get into it. So I'd love to start, obviously, before all these, you know, very interesting roles that you've had that led you to starting this company. You were a kid once. You were in high school and you had dreams for where you thought you were going to go. What were those dreams? Like what's, take me to like high school, Catherine, like what did she want to do? What was her childhood like? What was the plan around like high school age? Yeah, I, for a long time, maybe middle school and high school, I wanted to be a pediatrician. And a lot of that was driven by my stereotypical tiger mom, like the Asian mom who's like, you have to be a doctor, a lawyer, a something with a steady income, something that you probably need a secondary degree. And I just thought, okay, well, if I have to be a doctor, it might as well be like a fun doctor. And so that <laughs> that's why I became interested in being a pediatrician. But as I took biology and chemistry, like it's very clear, I'm not good at that, any of that sort of stuff. So I knew that I was probably not going to pursue it after graduating high school. And I guess, fun fact, I went to high school, middle school and high school in Hong Kong and Shanghai. So I lived abroad and I lived in Shanghai uh, in the early 2000s. And like, this was a time when China was really, really changing. The skyline was changing. Buildings were coming up left and right. And I saw how real estate made a really big difference in people's lives, how it changed communities, created jobs. And that's how I then pursued real estate rather than becoming a doctor. Mm, so it was more about the environment you were going to high school in, what was going on outside versus like what you were necessarily learning on the inside, which is really cool, actually. It's funny that you thought pediatrician was like fun doctor. Like when I think of what's the kind of one, especially that sounds the least fun, it's like dealing with angry parents and scared parents, you know, because being a pediatrician, you think you take care of kids, but you're actually just mostly dealing with the parents because the kids can't really talk. So I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't even believe that you thought that that would be fun. Yeah. Well, I, so I have a daughter, she's 15 months and I just took her to the pediatrician yesterday and you're totally right. By yeah. The way. But it's like yeah. all she, all the doctor does is like, okay, like I'm going to like put a, sh I'm going to give your daughter a shot and she's going to cry and that's going to be miserable. And so what you're describing is totally true. She's a great yeah. doctor, but <laughs> yeah. But that's just what they do. Like that's just, you can't really do much for a kid and the kid can't say what's going on with them. And a kid always cries. So you just, you never really know. Wait, quick pause on the kid thing. Like, let's talk about this. Is this the first kid or is this the second kid or what number? First kid. She is adorable. She's just so beautiful. I love her so much. And I started stuff two years ago. I had her, yeah, 15 months ago. And 
I was raising money at the same time that I was like in labor. I was waiting for money to hit the bank. And so just between contractions, refreshing the bank account. And so that's a whole other, you know, we'll get into that. We can, we'll yeah, that. we can get into that. Yeah. Wait, what's your name? Sophie. She's also really super determined. Will yeah, not take no. Okay. Yeah. Won't take no for an answer. Very kind of aggressive. Like there's a ball. I'm going to get it. She actually got a, she scraped her forehead this past week because she was chasing the older girls. <laughs> she was at the park. She was chasing older girls. And I'm like, you, you can like barely run. Please stop. So 15 it's really months. fun. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. She's really fun. I don't know if you feel this way, but I think like I've always, I always talk about hypothetically, I currently don't have any kids, but I always talk about like, I build for the world I want my daughter to live in. And there's like this really like feminine urge, maternal urge. I don't know what it is. And I might not have daughters. I don't know. But I really feel like when I have a daughter, hopefully I do, that I will like really light something else in me. I don't know if that's been your experience, but like I just feel like so much of what I do is for that kid that I, I'm going to love in the future. Yeah. I often have the feeling of I want to make Sophie proud. And I often describe my feminism as like a quiet feminism. So I want to be a feminist in what I do, not necessarily what I say, right? Like, because my actions mean much more than, you know, a post or a tweet or whatever. So I, I think about her a lot. And yeah, I'm very motivated. <laughs> <laughs> I like the quiet feminism idea. I think that's, um, it's like leading by example, right? I think people sometimes ask me, like, so my, I grew up with a single mom. She raised two girls. And it's like, she never said anything. Like, I don't think there's, there's something I recall that I'm like, oh, she said that and that still sticks with me. Like, other than, you know, I love you or whatever. It's just the example of like who she was that made me want to be. And so I think that's really spot on. It's like how you act that inspires your daughters. Well, I'm very excited for you. I'm excited to get into all the nuances of like fundraising while in labor. That's, that's coming. Let's, let's talk about, so high school thought maybe pediatrician, but like not really. We were liking real estate. We were realizing how much real estate affects the world. Talk to me about college. I know you came to NYU for college. You studied hospitality, which is different than real estate. And I guess it's kind of connected to real estate and pediatrician. So walk me through that. How, what was that like? Why'd you pick that major? It was easy because I said, hey, I'm going to be a hotel developer. I'm going to build beautiful hotels. I'm going to go to Hawaii and Abu Dhabi and Paris, like that's going to be my life. And turns out that's not true or that's not super easy to obtain. And I did love studying hospitality because hospitality covers a lot, right? Hotel development, travel, tourism, food and beverage. So it's just like an area in life that I find really interesting. And I studied hotel management for four years, but I ended up with a pretty like normal commercial real estate job. So just investing in real estate. So that's what I did out of college. Got it. And were there any favorite classes during your time in college that made you realize, oh, I like more of the real estate side of it? That like, what was that wake up moment? Was it just coming back and visiting home and seeing how much things had changed? Like, what was that moment that made you go, of all this wide hospitality variety of things I could do, real estate is the thing? Yeah, it's funny you said wake up moment because my favorite class was a walking tour of New York and it was Fridays at 8 a.m. So I had to wake up <laughs> at 7 a.m. And there are definitely classes or tours that I missed, but I just loved walking the city and rather just so focused on the people, you know, but looking above and seeing, wow, this entire, you know, these historic buildings, this has been around for 200 years and just how important that was to 
making New York what it is and like the vibe and the people and the culture. And that's the part I like about real estate. It's just how people interact with the space, their behaviors, not necessarily the actual bricks. Absolutely. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And obviously you've had your, your long, illustrious career that we'll get into. So you get this first job out of school doing real estate. Talk me through what your job was. Like as an entry level out of college, what was the day-to-day? The day-to-day was often looking at financial models was, and I don't mean this in a negative sense, pushing paper around, but making sure this database tied with this, the information's all syncing. Occasionally, it meant traveling the country and looking and touring some assets, meeting potential joint venture partners or existing partners. So that was really fun. I really enjoyed the the travel, like interacting with the the real estate itself and creating relationships with people. That's the stuff that I loved. It was not the numbers, the analysis, the data part of it. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you just, you don't know that though until you're in it and you're experiencing it. And I think the people piece that you mentioned lends itself really nicely to being a founder eventually, right? Like building the long-term relationships, being able to call up people, managing a team, like that, that's like long-term stuff. Okay. So you're doing this job. Are you liking it? Is it interesting for you? When do you switch? Why do you switch? I liked it. It was interesting because I knew nothing. So I had a lot to learn. I didn't know how to invest in real estate, how to anything about property management or capital markets or anything. So there was just so much room to grow. And I learned a ton. And I really liked the people I worked with, which I think a lot of people or when I talk to friends and and family, they can't always say the same thing. But I was really lucky. Um, and I had people who wanted to mentor me, who actively took me under their wing. So I was very blessed from, from that perspective. Some of the red flags, though, for me were were a lot of the, the, the people at the, the company were there for 15, 20, 25 years. And I'm like, I see more for myself. I want to try different things. I want to take some chances. And like just learning about that, I just knew that wasn't for me. That's such a good point. I think a lot of people look at the jobs of their bosses and the people around them and they're like, do I want this? And if you don't want that same career, maybe, not always, but maybe it's not the place for you to be long-term or for you to even be for that moment. So then you work at a few of these firms, right? Doing just like different real estate investments. And then you switch over to Equinox. What was that opportunity like? I mean, Equinox, it's so funny. So many of these like gigantic companies that we all know of now, right? Like a Whole Foods or an Equinox or whatever. They're actually like real estate companies in many ways because they're, they're spread out at Starbucks, right? It's like, where are you plopping that location? Where is it going to? I mean, Equinox, right? More high-end customers. Where are people going to buy? Whole Foods, more high-end customers. McDonald's, maybe less so. Like, you know, so there's a real estate component to it that not everyone realizes. Walk me through that opportunity and like why you kind of switched over to the, the company side. Yeah, I was really, really hungry to get closer to the end user or the consumer, the person actually consuming the real estate experience, right? Whether it's um, someone who's working out or an office tenant. And that meant for me, it was like going closer to co-working or fitness so that I could get closer to, to the customer. And I lived across from an Equinox at the time. And When I made any money at my first job, I signed up for an Equinox membership. Like that was the first thing that I did. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to like get fit. I'm going to be part of this Equinox culture. Like this is what I aspire to be. And so Equinox is just this brand that, that I kept coming back to because literally I was staring at it. Like that was, (laughs) that was the building outside of my um, window. 
And so when I had an opportunity to join, it was really big for me to make that jump because it was difficult. I applied to a lot of jobs working for retailers and for whatever reason, I just never got hired or got picked. Yeah. It's so funny. We like idolize these certain companies, like especially when you have no money that, and everyone has a different thing. Like it sounds like your thing was Equinox. My thing has always been like a private chef. Like it's just a running joke. I don't love cooking. I'm actually really working on it and I've gotten much better, but you know, like we all have these like brands or these ideas of like what we would do if we kind of got to that next level. And so it's so funny that you ended up literally working there. You were like, okay, well I don't, you know, I like, I like this brand. Maybe I'll go work there. Maybe I'll go do that now. It was either going to be fitness or restaurants. And I, um, funny you mentioned food because I used to write a food blog. I was, I thought I was some kind of food authority. It's still What's active. It fattycat.com. Fattycat.com. F-A-T-T-Y-K-A-T.com. Yeah, but it's really cringe and I can't read any of it. And I look back and I'm like, ugh, why did you think you should be informing people's opinions? And Why not? But it was really fun. It's something that I cared about. I put a lot of time into and I guess was my first business venture, right? Totally. Did you ever monetize or anything or it was more just like for fun, like when you would go to restaurants and? I did. I started, uh, I, I put Google ads up on the sidebar of the, the blog. And then I got some natural clicks, but also just begged some friends like, hey, if you're reading, click, 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 click. So <laughs> not I exactly. love it. Supporting you. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Yeah, I feel like everyone has that early especially like founders. I feel like so much of being a founder is about like creativity and like expressing yourself and expressing the vision you see for the world. And like before starting a company, a lot of the times that does take the form of like journalism and like media and like, how do you see things? What is your opinion on the world? I think not everyone like makes that comparison, but I think that happens a lot. Like I think that's why we see a lot of founders on Twitter, right? Like they want to share their opinion and their creative vision for the world. And it's often through words or pictures, even if it is a little food, a hint of food. I also randomly had a food blog back in the day. Ooh, is it still up? It's not still up. It was because it was actually a food Instagram. Okay, so, I have both. Yeah. You had both. Okay, so mine was a food Instagram. And then I kind of cheated. I converted the followers, like I changed the handle and like converted the followers for one of my businesses. Because I was like, I'd love to start with 20K followers, you know? But they were like, wait a sec. We thought you were going to be posting about food. And now I'm seeing this other business. What? Didn't work. PSA, it didn't work. I went through that recently with my now business because you go from food to self-storage and that connection doesn't really work. You're like, what's <laughs> going on? We've really just picked two very different things. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but if we, if we talk about restaurants and then we go to real estate and then we go to storage, I mean, we can find ways to connect. So funny. Okay. So you're at Equinox doing work there and then you decided to move over to Industrious, which... I actually feel like a lot of people will probably know that name because co-working spaces, they're all over, especially in New York. And you ran real estate, VP of real estate there. Tell me like what that experience was like. Why move over to Industrious? And you were there for so many years. So, so tell me more about that too. Yeah. I mean, day one, I didn't really run anything, yeah, but eventually I did. I was the first real estate hire at Industrious. And so that meant actually sourcing deals, building processes, systems um, that then would help the company scale down the road. But in the beginning, it was just like, let's just go to different cities, find a location that would work for Industrious, negotiate with the landlord, and then pass that along to the operations team. And they would get it built, set up, and, and open for business. And for a long time, I admired WeWork. And so it was really interesting joining Industrious because Industrious is a premium version or premium co-working space. And I got so lucky because the leadership team there 
is incredible. I learned so much from them and they really gave me a lot of responsibility. So my early wins, like the promotions, the the opportunities that came my way, I just would not have gotten that in any sort of corporate setting. And so I really drank the startup Kool-Aid. I'm addicted to startups. I'm st- you know, I have my own startup now, but it really originated from that experience. And I was building um, a team and helping to build industries at the same time that WeWork was coming up. And you know that story. Like, that's an insane oh, story. Oh, we all. And it's, right. so funny. it's almost the irony of you being like, the leadership was so great. And I'm like, hmm, yeah, not always that way. So not to poo-poo WeWork, but we had to be really creative, scrappy in how we were going to grow the business because we were much more resource constrained than we were. We didn't have, whatever, $40 billion. And so... I think in many ways we did a lot with very little and just knowing how that story played out and industrious, I was partially acquired by a company called CBRE, a publicly traded real estate company a couple of years ago. That was an incredible experience having been the underdog and, and having to kind of punch up our weight. So that was phenomenal. And it taught me a lot about running a business or building a business from scratch. And it also meant that I, I went through a lot of buildings, office buildings, retail, residential. I've just been through, been through so many buildings and noticed the weird funky spaces in those buildings, the basements, the garages, the, you know, the nooks behind the, the door around the corner. And ultimately that led to stuff. Yeah. And, and stuff is the name of her company because stuff is a good name, but it's also a name that sounds like S-T-U-F-F, which it led to stuff. And my, people might be like, wait, what stuff? It's yeah. Intentionally spelled wrong. S-T-U-F. I love it. That's awesome. And I'm glad that they were so great to you. How how early did you join? So, you know, Industrious, obviously we all now see it everywhere and you guys, you know, partially acquired. But I mean, if you joined all those years ago, what was the size that you that you joined? Yeah, I joined right after the Series B. And I want to say on the corporate team, maybe 15, 20 people. It was a tiny, sweaty office. So it was small. And joining right after the B is like the best time, especially if the B goes well, because it's like, we're ready to rock, you know, like you've really reached those hurdles. Like, I mean, not always things can still not go well, but that's like such an exciting time to join a company. I think like right, right at that inflection point. But I have to tell you, I didn't know what series A, series D, F, G, C, like I didn't know what any of these things meant. I just knew I was joining a startup and I didn't know. You didn't have that context. Yeah. I, I had no context. I was just like, I think I'm joining something exciting. I'm going to do it. And I did a little research, but really not enough. And I got very lucky finding Industrious. Amazing. Well, they also got lucky finding you, clearly. For sure. Yeah. (laughs) For sure. I'm awesome. Okay. So then you're at Industrious for all this time. And then you get the idea for Stuff, which is your company now that you started, that you're the CEO of, that you've been scaling for a few years. Walk me through like the process of leaving Industrious and starting Stuff. Like, why did you do it? You noticed all these nooks and crannies, but how do you turn that into a business? Like, where did you see the opportunity? And then co-founder. So who's your other co-founder? Walk me through all that. So during the pandemic, I really felt like a caged bird. You know, I meant to fly and I'm stuck at home in my two-bedroom apartment. And so I thought I started thinking about different business ideas. And like I mentioned to you, I was really obsessed with the weird funky spaces. I was like this basement crawler for so many years. And I finally had the time and energy to like think about it because I, you know, I was working from home. And this was at a time when restaurants were going out of business. This was pretty early in the pandemic. Yeah, because you started the company end of 2020, right? So these these are thought processes like middle of 2020. So we're a few months into COVID. Yeah, we're so we're putting the, the pieces in place for stuff to eventually launch later in the year. But 
at first it was a ghost ghost kitchen concept. Like I was like, I'm going to save restaurants and small business. And I love eating local. Like I, I can't imagine all of these places going out of business. So I thought, okay, well we can monetize this underutilized real estate as ghost kitchens. And these are going to be like really brand friendly, chef friendly ghost kitchens. Wait, pause. We have some listeners that don't know much about business. So ghost kitchens, explain what's a ghost kitchen. Ghost Kitchen is a shared kitchen space that many brands or restaurants can cook out of. And it's really a delivery only uh, model. So DoorDash, Uber Eats, Postmates, those drivers or, or people on bikes would come and pick up the food and deliver it to whoever orders it. So there really is nowhere to sit, nowhere to pick up, purely delivery. Perfect. So like as an example, you'd see a restaurant on DoorDash that's called, you know, Restaurant A or whatever it's called, but that you wouldn't actually find a storefront for it. You might not be able to even find it online. It's almost like it's like that's why it's called Ghost. Exactly. It's great. Okay, keep going. So the, the kitchen, the, the concept was a ghost kitchens concept. Okay. Yeah, I worked on it for two, three months. I was really, really, really passionate about it. And I reached out to one of the investors who had invested in Industrious. He had started his own fund. And I read that he had invested in other ghost kitchen concepts. So I was like, I'm going to reach out to him. I'm going to do research, pick his brain. And during that call, he actually flipped the call on me and made me pitch the idea to him. So it was like, rather than (laughs) me get something out of it, he was going to get something out of it. And he was like, Kat, I will literally invest in anything that you work on. I know what you're capable of, but do anything but ghost kitchens. He, has, he said, you have no business running F&B at scale. And he was right. Like I had never run food a restaurant. F&B, yeah, food, food and beverage. Food and beverage, exactly. Man, I gotta like, I gotta I know. know my I, audience I, I, a little I, bit more. No, 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 no. I do the same thing. And it's really helpful because people will be like, I didn't know what this was. This was. So I, I always try to catch myself and guests. We can get a little bit in it. But yes, F&B, food and bev. Okay, keep going. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. And so after his feedback... I started looking at some other stuff and and he and I looked at it together. So my co-founder is actually one of my investors. He incubated stuff as Wilshire Land Capital. And we looked at a lot of things, last mile logistics, doggy daycare, data centers, uh, a lot of ideas to monetize this type of space. And then when I looked at uh, self-storage, initially I was just like, this is so boring. Like this sucks, not sexy, not cool, not anything I had ever imagined working on. But the more I dug into it, I just realized, wow, this is a massive industry of one in 10 U.S. households renting a storage unit. So right, that's a lot of people, an impact that you could potentially make. And then I took, took note of the brands in the space, the publicly traded brands, the ones that you see along the highways. And my findings are really that it's kind of looked at as a commodity. There is no brand loyalty. There's, there's no self-storage brand out there doing anything very interesting or appealing. And so I said, it's perfect, right? There's a huge gap between where the industry operates today and where I think it can go. And I like to say we aspire to be the Warby Parker of self-storage. And funny enough, one of our investors is the founder of Warby Parker. So it's kind of like a, a full circle moment. And so what we do is monetize underutilized real estate in office buildings and retail and apartments as tech-enabled self-storage. So if you're a resident or if you're a small business, Ideally, you would get access to a storage unit right around, right in your neighborhood. So across the street, around the corner, it should be really easy to access. Amazing. I think this is awesome. I wonder, so obviously a lot of folks are now working remotely and a lot of these commercial office spaces are going unrented. 
So what is your, it sounds like you guys do a lot of residential stuff too, but do you guys do any commercial spaces that you, yeah? Yeah, that's a good question. So I would say the majority is actually in office buildings because my network and my past work experience has really been in office space. So we're trying to make a bigger push into multifamily, into residential and retail as well. Got it. So it's more like it started more commercial and now you're pushing more residential versus the other way around. Got it. Yeah. And the whole point is you should have self-storage or access to self-storage near you. It shouldn't be 20, 30 minutes away driving. It shouldn't feel sketchy. It should actually be like a pleasant experience and one that you probably engage with once a week or even more often because your clothes are there, your seasonal items, your business inventory, whatever it is, we should just make it easy on you. And so that's why that's how the tech enabled piece comes in. It's it's really a mobile first experience and we don't have anybody on site. I love it. Yeah, that's awesome. It's so crazy when you can bring technology into some of these like legacy industries, what you can really do. And like maybe a hint of brand, you know, like just a little, like a thoughtful logo, just a nice like color palette. It's just crazy what you can do and to elevate. How has it been building it? So obviously we we hinted at the beginning that you were in labor when you were fundraising and fundraising is a whole other conversation, but how have you enjoyed it? Like, where are you at now? What's the process been? Give me the the update. I love it. And I can't imagine doing anything else. I love being my own boss. I love building a team. I love building. It's really exciting. And I was at a dinner with a bunch of female founders a couple months ago. And, you know, we're like, oh, I'm complaining about this business problem or this or that, you know, just things that come up. And then at the end of the dinner, we all looked around and said, would you do anything else? And the answer was no, we just love it so much. And I feel, you know, my name's on the line. And so it has to be successful. I have right now, I have 11 people on my team. That's 11 people, their families, their livelihoods. Like that's a lot of pressure. We have to be successful for them, right? And I like that pressure. I, I, I do better under pressure, but it's been a lot of fun, but also really hard at the same time. Yeah, you have to love it to be able to push through those hard times, especially now, right? I mean, I'm sure your business lends itself really well to recession because people want to, you know, make more money on the side. So you're in a better spot than most, but it's really hard to do anything during a recession. I mean, you're going to have to still fundraise. You're still going to have to operate in this economy. So, but yeah, your business does lend itself nicely, which is great. Walk me through the, the like labor story. Like, I'm so curious, like what stage were you fundraising? And also if you had your baby 15 months ago, and then nine months before that, you got pregnant. It sounds like you, like they kind of started around the same time-ish, like stuff and getting pregnant and all that. So I'm so curious, like what that was like. We have a lot of female listeners. And so it's always good to talk about the real stuff, you know? Yeah. So I left Industrious November, 2020. And so we announced our seed round in Dece- the next month, December, 2020. I think I got pregnant in May of 2021. So like six months later, two or three months after that, I told my investors and I was really, really scared because they had just entrusted me with all this money to build a company. And now I'm saying, Hey, I have to take time off. You know, I am going to have a baby and and my life's going to completely change. And so I was really scared about that conversation, but my investors are incredible. There are so many like bad, sad stories, but we're just dealing with investors, but mine are the best. So understanding, they were like, you're absolutely going to take a maternity leave. Like, there's no question about it. Kat, you can push back all you want, but like, you have to take time off. And that's exactly what you want to hear, right? Because at the time I was like, oh, you know, maybe I can work while, you know, I'm breastfeeding or whatever. And they're like, Kat, just stop. Like, you're going to take time off. And so I really appreciated that 
firmness from them and their support. And it just meant that I had to hustle and build this company when I was pregnant and, and build it in a way that could scale and grow even while I was out. So I took two months off and I was really good about it. I didn't check my emails. I checked in with uh, someone on my team maybe once a week just for like a quick update. But otherwise, I, I wasn't really working. And my team had the best quarter they've ever had, the quarter I was out. So I came back and I'm like, ah, you don't need you me don't anymore. Need me. <laughs> you don't need me. Um, but yeah, we. I mean, I had to raise money towards the end of my pregnancy. And it was hard. And I felt like, okay, is this something I have to disclose or not? And I talked to a bunch of other female founders and they're like, it makes no difference to an investor or it shouldn't, right? You are who you are. Your capabilities are what they are. And so I think for the most part, I really didn't disclose it. And I really didn't make it, it didn't create any issues with any investors either. But I love that now you can look back in hindsight and be like, they had the best quarter ever. So like, even if there was any doubt, and even if anyone listening now, there's doubt, it's like, why? There's no, they, the proof is in the pudding. Like you were able to get it to a place where you could delegate and they could crush it. And it's not necessary for there to be fear around these things because, you know, as long as you've got a great operator setting things up right, you'll be fine. Yeah. So one or two things that I did that were really important on that leave. So I hired three people a month before I went on that leave, which is not ideal, right? Like you're trying to onboard three different people. But what I'm really good at is organizing and building scalable processes. So I built one onboarding program, if you will, for just like new new people and then was able to reuse that three times over. And the feedback I got from my team was like, wow, like, you guys are so organized. I know exactly where to find something. If I have a question, 90% of the time, I know where the answer is. And so building that scalable orientation or onboarding process was really, really great. And then the thing that I learned after coming back from Matt Leave was that Matt Leave is incredible for delegation because you simply cannot work on Matt Leave or you can choose not to work. And when you come back, it means your team has absorbed a lot of the responsibilities that you used to have. And rather than take those back on, you can kind of level up and take on bigger responsibilities or focus on strategy or focus on things that that push the company forward. And so MatLeaf was a really good forcing mechanism to delegate. And so I like to tell women that who who often say, I'm scared, what do I do on MatLeaf? It's great. And it's a great opportunity for those that have been working hard internally at your company to take on more responsibility. Same way you talked about industrious, pushed you to do more and more. It also is great from like a professional growth standpoint for the people that are under you that have been working with you for a while that can actually do a lot of the stuff that you've been doing. And it sounds like it was a good inflection point too, because it was right around the time you were doing an extra fundraising boost. So it's like in the life cycle of a company, you can like hire more people, offload more things, and then keep moving up. I think not enough people think that way. And it's important that we have these conversations so that when folks do go on mat leave or they know they're going to have to, they aren't as scared. Yeah, for sure. And it set a good example for the rest of the team. And my team is, I guess, 70% women. So that's an important precedent to set. Absolutely. Absolutely. And being vocal about this stuff. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. And I'm so glad you had your daughter because she's just the cutest So cute. Thing. Let's just revisit. Let's just revisit. Oh <laughs> my God, you guys. It's I really unreal. Her. It's I love really her so her much. Oh my gosh. She keeps yeah. playing phone. Uh, it's unreal. Well, Thank you so much for coming on. I do have one more question for you before we wrap. And this is a question that we ask all our guests. And if there is one piece of advice that you could give to every 20-something, what is that piece of advice you'd give them? 
I think this is a bit unpopular because I, I know so much of the work narrative is about work-life balance, but I think sometimes you just need to work really freaking hard to get something that you want. And maybe not everybody wants to be a business leader or a leader in like a, in a medical profession or whatever. But if there's something that you want, you have to work really hard. And sometimes work must be the priority. But the key is finding the balance between work and life on a long-term basis. But there are going to be those moments where you're just going to have to work freaking hard. That was really the first year or two for me building stuff. And now I feel like I have so much more balance, being able to balance my family, my husband, my company, my team. And so there are always those moments. Yeah. But like being okay with there being those you know, moments where you are putting a lot more time into work. I think the other piece of it too is like the mindset that is required to work that hard. Like, I think we don't talk enough about that. And that's something that I've been realizing a lot recently is like all the things that are needed to get you to be able to work hard. So it's like taking care of your body, taking care of your mind, taking care of everything will give you the opportunity to work that hard. But it's like making sure that because you're going to burn out if you go crazy hard for years. So it's like, it's not a balanced thing. It's more just like, what are all the things you can set up for your mental and physical health so that you actually can be that resilient and truly build the thing and like work really, really hard or move up the ladder or whatever the industry is? Yeah, I have a lot of systems that allow me to work hard, even even today, right? When I have all these other things to, to balance, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, we have to learn these things the hard way though. So like, even though you're saying this and I'm saying this, there's gonna be people who still have to learn you just have to learn. It's experience. Yeah. Experience. Well, thank you so much for being here. Can you tell everyone where they can learn more about you on social and if they want to use stuff randomly? It's so funny that you're, we're talking about this because I am looking for a storage unit as we speak, like as of today, it's a whole other thing, which we can talk about off the record, but so it's very funny. But if there's other people like me that want to look into stuff or monetize, you know, the nooks and crannies in their, in their spaces, where should they go and where should they find you? Yeah, they should go to stuffstorage.com. And remember, stuff is S-T-U-F, stufstorage.com. Uh, you can find me at NYC Fatty Cat on Instagram. We kept the I name. My, we kept the yeah, name. We kept NYC the name. Fatty Cat with K-A-T. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You can find me there. And it was really nice being here. So thank you, Erica. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks for being open with us and, and sharing your story. And I'm sure a lot of folks really be inspired by it. So I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20-something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20-something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts.